on episode 85 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, start with why. Any activity, no matter how good, when it starts to hurt, if it's only an activity, we'll stop doing it. If it's an identity, if it's who I am, I don't have an option of stopping it. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're talking with James Walker. At the time of recording this podcast, James was the Vice President of Operations for AirServe, a national HVAC service franchiser based in Waco, Texas. They have over 200 locations across the country. Now he's COO of Blue Frog Plumbing Company out of Austin. James is a friend of mine and regularly teaches a Sunday school class at my church. He taught a lesson recently on starting with why, and it really resonated with me. It's basically the idea that true positive change doesn't come from outside activity, but instead starts on the inside with your identity. We so often try to affect results by changing our activity when in reality our biggest core issue is that our identity needs to be transformed. And now, here's my talk with James. So James, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, can you kind of introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Randy, it's great to be here. My name is James Walker. I'm the Vice President of Operations for a company called AirServe, and we're a national franchisor. We've got over uh, 200 franchise locations all across the U.S., Canada, and some even in Europe. And so what I do is I'm the person who's responsible for making sure the operational effectiveness and efficiencies are are, are built into those local businesses and helping people get the most out of their people, Hmm. the most out of their team by creating a culture that allows them to achieve, as opposed to just a strict list of systems, this is what you should and should not do. And I mostly know you from a personal setting. Yeah. As a friend, and we, we go to the same church, and sure. you, you teach at our Sunday school there sometimes. Yeah. Uh, what's your background when it comes to like the church? Yeah, great question. So I grew up as a missionary's kid over in China and in the Philippines, believe it or not. And China was a closed country. We went over with a very small select group of people, about 30 families. Tianjin, um, as with my dad, was a business consultant. So I grew up with a very strict Southern Baptist kind of, this is how you do what you do background, teetotaler, dogmatic, (laughs) you know, I mean, seriously, I used to listen to the radio just on like, you know, one or two degrees above mute. So I could hear like the beat. And if my dad walked in on me and the beat was going in the background, it was (laughs) Satan music. So he's, he's thawed a little bit since then, but I kind of had a place of where coming back through in college, I I really pushed back against that because it seemed a lot of, a lot of rules, a lot of this is thou, how thou should act in it really, you know, it really comes back to the alignment of leadership conversation of uh, who am I really had to be found in my relationship with God. And so I think one of the biggest things that we came across was in college, I said, okay, Jesus, if you're real, I'm going to follow you with my life. And I started really pursuing God, I guess I'd say is the best way to say it. I really found it was actually, actually, I'd say, you know, uh, whether you're calling it born again or what, I was 17. It was actually when I was about 24, I hit some pretty heavy walls, uh, all these other circumstances I'm not going to get into. But I really had to hit a breakdown because I was going and trying to accomplish things for God. And I basically had to get born again, again, and understand that the pursuit of God had nothing to do with me chasing after him, but with him chasing after me. And that my identity was found in being the one pursued by God as opposed to the one defined, whose worth is defined by going and catching and doing the things of God. And so that was really a catalytic moment for me in my life, my wife, around 24, 25, and kind of been the mission that I've ever been on ever since. Before that moment, I would say that my life in God was defined by doing things for him, seeing people as the means to God's great end. 
And at that moment when I had that breakdown and that basically, you know, spiritual awakening, um, whatever you want to call it, God's only challenge to me was, all I'm asking of you, James, is just to love the person in front of you to the fullness that you've been given love. And if you do that, it doesn't matter what designs you put on life. Don't don't try to create any type of ends other than loving the next person in front of you. And if you do that, you'll fulfill all the purposes that I created you for. And so that's been kind of, for lack of a better term, my dictum or my mantra, the place of where, you know what, what defines my worth is not what I achieve, but the identity that I have of being spoken to and the worth that the love of Jesus has spoken over me. And out of the overflow of that, speak that worth and value and identity into people we come across on a daily basis. And this isn't really a Christian or religious podcast, but I do feel like a lot of the leadership values that you probably use in work and in life in general probably come from your sure. faith. It, it does. And so again, you know, you always get, it's, it's funny, I have a huge pushback internally against, you know, the fish on the business card and say, hey, you know, uh, trust me, you know, Jesus and I type stuff. And so using faith as a leverage to get buy-in, it really sets me on edge. But that being said, it's, it's undeniable that who I am and how I feel best led and therefore best able to lead is based out of this understanding that my worth is not based on what I achieve or what I, my, the quantification of all of my results. And really, I mean, candidly, not to get too deep into it, I think one of the biggest issues we have in America is that our worth is defined by our results. Other mm-hmm. people, when they see us, they say, hey, your worth is because you achieved X. And truly, fundamentally, we as people were created, you know, some of this conversation started with, a, not started, but was really um, refined by Simon Sinek and David Mead. These start with why the golden circle, the understanding that there is a greater identity below what defines our activity on the surface. And we so often try to affect results by changing our activity when in reality our biggest core issue is that our identity needs to be transformed. And, and I think in my life historically, the places where I feel most misaligned or most dry or most discouraged are when I'm trying to adapt my activity to achieve a certain result as opposed to dip myself fully, immerse myself fully into a separate identity that allows the results to be the outpouring the outflow, the fruit of that change at a root level. And so that's how we kind of connected on this. You know, I was in one of your teachings and this is what you're talking about. And I was like, oh my gosh, this has so many repercussions, not just for Christians or for people of faith, but for just people who are looking for a better way of operating. And so I'm a visual guy and and you put this uh, kind of figure up on the board. Can you kind of describe visually for people who are listening? Yeah. Okay. So basically Simon Sinek calls it the golden circle and he's got these three concentric circles. And by concentric, I mean descending in size within each other. Mm -hmm. And at the center circle, there's three circles is what's called why. The second outer ring is called how, and the third most outer ring is called what. And basically, often we think in terms of whenever we have a value proposition that we present to our potential customers, we say, hey, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. This is how I do it. And then we often miss the why it is done. Mm-hmm. And in reality, the why is what connects people to the passion or purpose behind any initiative that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, people fail to get inspired by the what? You know, I, I create building blocks. Well, so what? Lego. The reason I mess with Legos is not because I've got these blue and yellow building blocks, but because of the why of being able to design this intricate world within which I project all my imaginations. Well, that why is concrete and defined. How they do that is through building blocks and what they do is really the outpouring of that. Those concentric circles of why, what, 
and how David Mead, Simon Sinek referred to, is really starting with why, and that everything that we do and we communicate and to get buy-in with people is to allow them to understand our why first, as opposed to what we do first. And if you want to, in my mind, I liken it to, instead of why, how, and what, I think for me, it's a little bit more about on the inner circle is what's identity. Mm-hmm. What is on the middle circle is what's called behavior, and what's on the outer circle is called activity. And this is just kind of two different names for the same idea in that what, what, what David Mead, Simon Sinek would say is we so often want to achieve results. What we do when we don't get the results we want is we adjust our activity. Mm-hmm. And when you adjust your activity, basically what you're doing is you're affecting your what. Well, what am I doing? Well, I need to pinch this penny tighter or expand this so that my result is different. Mm-hmm. And in reality, anything that we do to affect a change on such a activity level will not have long-term results because it's not coming from the identity within which that person is actually different. I see this every single day. I work with small business owners, a lot of guys in the heating and air conditioning business, and most of them come from a technical background. And often when we talk about, hey, these are business concepts. You need to be able to create buy-in and get people to understand why they want to, ch- to do things a different way in your team. Well, the thing, they just paste it on as an activity. Like, well, I need to have these meetings. No, you don't need to have a meeting. You don't need to track a number. You need to think of yourself as a business professional now. When you look in the mirror, do you see a technician who is doing a bunch of business activity? Mm-hmm. Or do you see yourself as a business professional? Because when, when it comes to activity, when it starts to hurt any activity, no matter how good, when it starts to hurt, if it's only an activity, we'll stop doing it. If it's an identity, if it's who I am, I don't have an option of stopping it. Because no matter what it costs, I have to progress because my identity dictates. And as such, so often, it's a slower burn. And that's one of the things is when you define your why, when you find your identity, you're not going to get the quick fix spike in you know, exponential profits over you know, the next three days. What you will begin to see is a different change in culture, a different understanding of my team and, and creating of an alignment. And I, I realize you asked one question. I'm still talking 17 minutes later. <laughs> but I think one of the biggest things that when it comes to creating buy-in and understanding why, listen, I'm, I'm trying to move this direction and, and my guys aren't really going with me. Mm-hmm. I think the single biggest disconnect is alignment. And that they're not aligned with where we want to go. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But really, it's not them having a lack of knowledge of what to do. It's not a lack of awareness of what activity needs to be taken into hand. It's a lack of buy-in into the identity that you're asking of them or a lack of belief that that's who they are. I think of when I look at your illustration that change only comes from the inner circle going out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so often in our society... We want the change to come from the outside moving in, but it just doesn't work that way, does it? Well, you know, I'll say this. I think it's, I like to think in, you know, just unequivocal terms. I would like to say that I think change does come from the outside in, but it's not lasting change. Mm -hmm. It's not transformational change. It's a place of where I change my diet so that I can fit into a swimsuit or whatever it is so that I can achieve a small term resort. That's the whole reason when it comes to dieting that we resorb back to this, you know, state once we hit that goal. Sure. Somebody would say, well, it doesn't work. No, it does work. It just doesn't transform you. You're not a different person. You're the same. You've just patched on activities. And when the thing is, is when we're not operating in our full self and our whole most true self, everything that we do is a patch up of this gasping breath race to try to achieve some sort of thing. We're holding out. And then when we finally hit, we cross that finish line, we're done with it. As opposed to a place of saying, no, this is, this is me. I, I live a whole lifestyle. I live a whole 
way and out of that whole new identity, allow the fruits to be that I eat a different way, I act a different way, I exercise a different way. And the single biggest thought process there is the word fruit. And by fruit, you've got this whole matriculation process. We don't want matriculation. We don't want uh, gestation. We want push a button and out comes my results. Right. Takes time. For, yeah. I mean, I think about that. For me to change my identity of how I eat or how I exercise or what I believe about myself, it's not a three-week or six-week process. It's a, it's a lifelong journey to grow in my identity. And when I believe a different truth about myself, I treat my body a different way in how I ingest food and how I exercise. And so, I mean, again, that, that, that does get off into the philosophical kind of ethereal a little bit too much. But I think it's too easy for us to say, no, no changes are made outside in, but only lasting transformation. Look in the mirror and feel like you're living your whole full self changes happen from the inside out. Yeah. I was talking to somebody about the kind of diet transformation type of thing. And so like, say you want to have a certain outcome and you set a time limit on it, yeah. then you're really just kind of saying, you know, when I get to here, then I'll worry about the next thing. But if you said to yourself, no, you know, I really want to be healthy. I want to be around for my kids. Like that's a whole life change. Yeah. And I myself have done it. Like I, sure. I had a uh, Spartan race coming up and I said, you know, this is the thing that I am going to train for. So I'm going to abstain from, you know, eating all the pizza so that I can do well in the race. But then as soon as the race was over, I was, you know, the holidays kicked <laughs> in monster, and right? I was back up. So I was like, man, how do I reach that actual full lasting change? And I feel like if you're asking yourself that question, then you're already on the right track. But the, the problem is actually getting over that hurdle and saying, I do want to be a better person. I do want to change my identity from the inside, but I need to break through my bad habits, break through what I've been doing in the past. You know, as counterintuitively as it sounds, I think that stringent self-discipline for the short term is actually easier for us hmm. than looking our true identity in the face and saying, ah, I'm not okay with how I am and what it takes for me to become a different person. So true. So I can act a different way. It's easy for me. I got really, really good self-discipline. Uh, I'm able to go on the keto diet for nine weeks, 10 weeks. Whatever. That's great. I mean, it's no big deal for me, right? And I'll lose weight or whatever. But for me to look in the mirror and say, you know, it's not just about a diet. It's about I want to believe a different truth about myself. That comes with us having to face reality is what we believe about ourselves, and decide it's worth it to me to have a different lifestyle after this. And that's something that I think is really important for us to, to evaluate. We're not talking about leadership so much in this. It's kind of getting into more personal you know, accountability. I think that we value short-term results personally. The thing is, we will achieve those results. We just won't find the fulfillment in them unless it becomes part of who we are. We achieve those results by becoming and growing into a different identity as opposed to just pasting an activity on what we already have. One thing we struggle with here with the clients 360 solutions work with, and I think it probably is the same for you. So you're working with a company and they want to achieve results. Yeah. And the leader comes to you and they say, you know, I'm doing an awesome job. I'm an amazing leader, but my guys, my people won't follow. And then a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take a deep dive and look at the organization as a whole and say, listen, Mr. Leader, yeah. the problem actually starts from the top. Sure. And you're not looking at yourself in the mirror. And then that's why you're not getting the results that you want. It starts with you. Do yeah. you have that sort of situation? Oh, it's great. And you know, it's easy for me to point fingers because I've been doing this for a long time, but, but it starts back with me. I'm, I'm in a position of leadership and I truly have to fundamentally at my root level believe that I dictate how people treat me. I dictate how 
people interact with me or with my initiatives or with how I create buy-in or trust. And so when I'm dissatisfied with how people are responding, then that's a me issue typically. Now, again, you're going to have the odd you know, scenario where somebody is just disconnected with you and can't, but, but we'll talk about that in just a second. I think what it comes down to is, you know, somebody said, if you call yourself a leader and nobody's following you, then you're just out for a walk, right? So <laughs> I love I mean, that. It's great. And so I think the reality is I liken it to, I was walking the other day as I sat, sat down, I was just sitting there thinking through stuff and I looked down and there was a bent nail, a really strong, good quality nail, but it was bent and the word alignment came to my mind and I was looking at it and I thought, no matter what pressure I put, no matter how much perfect pressure I put on the end of that nail, it's never going to drive in straight until I bend it back into alignment. Hmm. And so the word alignment came in the thought process and you're going to read some other books about this. Extreme Ownership was a book that I love by oh, yeah. Jocko Willinks That's and some of those book. guys, some good stuff out there. But the word alignment to me means that your team has to buy into three cascading levels of you. And the first level they have to buy into is your greater goal. What what are we doing here? What is my goal? What is my why maybe? And they have to they not just buy into it, but you have to actually be authentic with that why. It's so easy if you listen to Simon Sinek, it's so easy for us to say, well, here's my why, but but your why is not what you state, it's what you are. And so by definition, it's not just because you crafted this great mission statement. It's when when decisions are truly made at a fundamental level. Why are you doing what you do? And if people buy into that, that's your first level of buy-in and alignment. So the second level is actually the strategy to attain that why. And so I liken to this, go back to World War II. We're all sitting here having a conversation on the Allied side saying, hey, we want to take down Hitler and you know go uh, beat the Nazis. That's great. Everybody has bought into the goal. But if we say, okay, our strategy is to uh, you know invade France with water balloons, our issue is with the strategy. We're okay <laughs> with the goal. We just don't like the strategy, right? Right. And so the cascading growth is you have to have buy-in to the goal first, the understanding, the overarching why, not just buy-in in name, but in soul. Your guys have to understand that. This is something that fulfills me. It creates alignment with my greater purposes in life beyond just getting paid. The second thing is the strategy. When we go to achieve that goal, what do we do? And does it effectively and efficiently allow us to apprehend that goal in a way that we buy into with the the culture and the character that we believe is, is required of us. And that's what you start to see, especially with millennials. A lot of people with like Tom's shoes or Warby Parker, uh, you buy one shoe, we give a shoe away. You buy some glasses. There's a place of where this greater sociological alignment with, with what I do provides worth and value to people beyond just cashing a check. That's becoming really huge as part of a strategy. And you don't want to say manipulate this tool just so you get people to buy in. But at the end of the day, this, this old Wall Street 1980s mentality of, hey, it's all about the bottom line. It's not. Too many people nowadays are tapped into what fulfills me is all the ancillary things beyond cash. So first, we're talking about the goal that has to be bought into. Second, we're talking about the strategy, and it has to be something that's beneficial, that has larger overarching transformational processes for the people who partake in it, not just transactional, but transformational. And then the last part of buy-in, I believe, maybe not the ultimate and the only part, but of the three, the last third part, once you have those first two, is you as a person. Your competency as a leader is huge. Are you competent? Do you actually have the verve, the capacity, the strength to say what is being said and be heard? Because just because you say something doesn't mean that they feel you deserve to be heard. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, just because you've been given authority, responsibility doesn't mean that they give you authority. And so it's important that you have that capacity 
and competency buy-in. The second thing you have to buy into is your character. And again, by, by character, I don't just mean that you you give the old lady back the eight cents that she deserves. <laughs> I, I mean character as in, are you cutting corners? When you challenge your people to, this This is the standard. This is how we're going to act. This is what we're going to do. Do you actually follow it or do you cut your own corners yourself? Because character is the word integrity. And integrity means one. It's integer. The word is one. And wholeness, oneness. And that just means you actually integrity in my definition doesn't, we always just attribute it to people who are of good moral character. For me, somebody who is complete, terrible moral character can be full of integrity as long mm-hmm. as they're saying what they are doing. Mm-hmm. They're full of integrity because they're an integer of worth. Now it's a, a really terrible negative <laughs> integer, but the issue is, do you do what you're saying? And that's what character speaks to. So one is competency. Two is character. Three is the culture that you create. At the end of the day, if you're able to create a culture by which people feel listened to, by which people see their dreams and goals established faster through you than apart from you, they're going to be loyal to you. So at the end of the day, the overarching alignment conversation we have to have is one, if I'm not getting people to buy into where I'm going, one, do I have a why or a goal that they can buy into? Two, do I have a strategy that they can attach themselves to and say, yes, that through this strategy, that goal will be attained? And then three, as a leader, do I have the competency and capabilities? Do I create a culture and do I have the character within which they buy in? So I'm interested in your industry when you talk to the owners of your franchises, what is the thing that they say to their people is the core of who you guys are and what you do? What's interesting is this is not indicative of all the industries, but we're in a service industry and the service trades basically have a very skilled and a licensed background. So almost everybody in this trade is coming from five, 10, 20 years of experience as a technician. And now we're asking them to become business professionals. And that stretch is pretty tough for people. So the two biggest things I tell these guys when they come in is one, your two biggest hurdles towards Achieving your best opportunity is one, understanding your financials, and then two, understanding leadership. And John Maxwell is a 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. Basically, he says the law of the lid dictates that if on a scale of one to 10, you're a three in the leadership spectrum, you'll never be able to create a business that's a four, five, or six because the moment you hire somebody that's a four, they're going to eventually move out. And that's what you see guys who come mm. in and they say, oh, I got this key man. He's going to be awesome. I'm going to retire. He's, he, he's going to be there six months or less. <laughs> so your number one single biggest issue that you as an owner have to focus on is who are you as a leader? Mm. Growing in your leadership capacity, your competency, your skill set. How do you draw people out? How do you call people to a higher standard? How do you go and lead by example? And so really what the challenge is, is when I talk to these guys, guys, it's not about you telling people to go do something, which is our default back to another great book, John Maxwell called the um, five, five levels of leadership. And level one is, is basically you do it because I told you to do it. And that's where we fall back on mm-hmm. what we as a franchise or provider systems. Here's a system to go and run a service call. Here's a system to run a replacement call. Mm-hmm. And by definition, they feel like, okay, Tim, my technician, Here's 10 steps. Go do that. And our biggest conversation with the owner, let's just call him Mike. Mike, Tim can know those steps backward and forward. He could say them until he's blue in the face backwards. But until he believes in why what he's doing is best for the customer, why what he's doing is best for him, and why what he's doing is best for his company, he's not going to do it. And that really is those three people have to win. Tim has to understand that whatever is asked of him, it's going to benefit his customer, it's going to benefit himself, and it's going to benefit the company. And if by doing those things he can see a faster path to what he really wants out of life, 
he will naturally do it because it's selfish. It's foolish for him not to. It's selfish for him to do what you want him to do because he sees that by doing it, he'll achieve everything that he wants to in business. Hmm. And it's really that clarity, that refinement of clarity, as opposed to coming in, Mike, the owner, and saying, guys, y'all sit down, shut up. Here's the next thing we're going to do. It really comes down to creating buy-in. And, and one thing I don't want to hit on too long here, I'm sure might even be running long, understanding the Socratic method. We really challenge our guys, and that's a big highfalutin word. But for lack of a better term, the Socratic method is basically having the end of an argument in mind when you start a conversation. I love that. And rather than telling somebody what to believe, you ask them questions that they themselves, of their own volition, answer that make them end up at your resolution, but they end up not because you told them to get there, but because they, of their own thought process, logically arrived at that exact same conclusion. Because people don't want to be beat down with your logic. They want to be like, you know what? That is a great argument you made. And actually, I think that's for the best. Well, that's exactly right. So somebody said once, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And you can actually have, I mean, I mean, studies have been done where you've got a guy and he definitively knows that pushing that button is going to shock him. But you have a sign there that says, don't push this button. And so he just wants to push it. It's <laughs> stupid. Our own human nature, we know what we should do or what we don't want to do. And rather than just telling people, there's this innate desire to push back against authority, against leadership. But if I sit down and I have a desired outcome from somebody, let's just say I'm Mike as the owner having a desired outcome from a technician. And I want him to use some sort of you know diagnostic process rather than saying, Tim you got to do this diagnostic or else you're fired. I mean, we can talk about the, the four different ways that you can create buy-in in a second. But rather than doing that, sit down and have the conversation saying, okay, my thought process is I want Tim to understand the value behind the total comfort diagnosis or the process that we have for diagnosis. diagnosis. So I sit down and I ask questions, two to three leading and logical questions that allow Tim, Tim, what do you feel like the customer values most about our company? Tim answers, well, you know, I feel like they feel like we're really thorough. Okay. Tim, you know, tell me this. What, what do you feel like defines thoroughness to them? Well, you know, I feel like, you know, maybe us being specific about what we go through and making sure that we're taking care of everything. I'm already, as you can see, allowing him to paint himself into the exact solution that I want from him, mm. but I'm not the one guiding him. He's guiding himself because his answers align. Now, again, at the end of the day, if you're finding misalignment, there's a place where you have wrong people on your team. Mm. And if they're the wrong people, we can talk about that. There's what's called the ideal team player. It's another good book to read. If you have done a great job of creating buy-in around the goal, buy-in around the strategy, buy-in around you, and there's just still a disconnect, a dissonance, a misalignment. There's a possibility that there's just not the right fit, but that's okay. At least you know why. As such, using that Socratic method, you allow people to see, oh, that makes sense. And he's not telling me to do anything. I want to do it because by doing it, it's going to benefit me. It's going to benefit the customer. It's going to benefit the company. They there then buy in to an activity at that point because of it just makes sense and it doesn't make sense not to. I've always liked the exercise of if you needed to write something for your tombstone, what do you want right. it to say? Because people who are in certain businesses just for money or whatever, they're going to see pretty quickly that that's not fulfilling for them. So yeah. say you have Mike and he's talking with his techs and he's having a hard time getting them yeah. around the company sure. values. And they say, you know, I just don't see putting on my tombstone. I helped somebody fix their air conditioner. Sure. Uh, how do you help them around that situation? One of the places where if you're reading that book, Start With Why uh, by Simon Sinek, I feel like it doesn't completely go into there. Basically, the value behind that thought process is, hey, we create something that's compelling because it's a why statement. I do this so that I affect this outcome. But the larger question is, is that why statement actually worth 
buying into or getting behind, just because you've got a very concise, refined why statement, does it actually compel us at a deeper level? And this is really where I, in my, uh, man, I've been through, you know, multiple companies, multiple different opportunities. I think one of the biggest defining factors that we see in the U.S. economy today is I want to do good things for people, uh, but ultimately it's because I want my profits at the end. And truly it's almost a place of where my why is not defined. Yeah. I mean, I'll even say, I don't know for sure one way or another, but Tom's Tom's with the giving of the shoes for every shoe that that, that might very well be a marketing scheme. Now it gets people to buy in, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, one of the most important things is, is that truth is at that local level that might reach me as a consumer and say, Oh, Tom's gives away shoes. But at that local level, if, God forbid, Tom's is actually using that as a marketing ploy, that identity trickles down into the staff, and they know that it's only a marketing ploy to get mm. people to buy in. And so one of the issues is when it comes to Mike talking about legacy, often we say, well, our legacy is to affect positive change in the lives of people and let them live happier, fuller lives. You know what? It's BS. It's not. We want to do that because it gives us what we want in profitability and, you know, and, and, and livelihood and all the above. At the end of the day, Zig Ziglar said, to get everything you want out of life, give the next person you see everything that they want out of life, and that's going to be what you get, where you get everything you want out of life. I think one of the most important thought processes is this. It's, it's not complete altruism, but it's a place of where we invest of me regardless of what that person is able to reimburse back to us. And I think what defines, and this gets back to my faith, often we quantify our holy worth. Uh, you know what? I want to uh, lead people so that they can enrich their best future life and achieve their highest dreams and goals. At the end of the day, my worth is a somehow commodified or tied to whether they reach their goals or not. I'm still trying to scratch that own itch of my own self-worth because I'm qualifying my worth based on whether they do or do not achieve. And I think mm. if you look at Jesus, I'm not again, I don't want to get too heavily into the spiritual, but Jesus came to seek and save the lost. His desire was to pour out to those who could give nothing back to mm-hmm. him. And what they did with it, that was up to them. He gave fully to the person in front of him, regardless of their ability to repay back. And if you as a business owner, Mike, are able to say what we do is about creating an enchanting experience, creating a place where people feel valued, cherished, and believed in, regardless of their ability to make it worth our time. Suddenly, I feel like there's a slight edge principle. You get that tipping point and people can't wait to do business with you because people value being valued for themselves. We'll be right back. And now it's time to meet a 360 Solutions strategic partner. So I'm Lana with Echo 9 Solutions. I came to 360 when I retired from the Army. I spent 28 years in the Army training soldiers, building them one by one. I was a first sergeant at the NCO Academy for a long time. I was an instructor at the Recruiting Academy, recruited for a long time. And when I got out of the Army, I still wanted to do that. And I was researching consulting companies, leadership, and again, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And I ran across 360 Solutions, and I actually went up to Waco and looked at their products. They were beautiful. I mean, they they looked good, they looked professional. I'm like, if I'm gonna go and put myself out there in front of people, I want to project professionalism in everything that I do. If, like Lana, you're ready to help organizations develop their leaders, consider partnering with 360 Solutions. Our high-performance leadership framework helps organizations run more efficiently with an engaged workforce. 
Find out about partnering with 360 Solutions at 360solutions.com slash partner. Again, that's 360solutions.com slash partner. And now back to the show. I have a good example of this. Yeah. So a couple weeks ago here, it was really cold. Yeah. Remember that just really sure. incredibly cold snap. cold snap? Right. I get home, it's been a long day. It's freezing cold outside. I hear this extra running water sound that I don't normally hear. I'm like, <laughs> oh, great. That's scary. And uh, I go outside on the, on the patio and one of the pipes for our outdoor kitchen has burst and there's hot water streaming all over the back. Ugh. So I go and shut off the water to the whole house because yeah. I don't know exactly how to get in there and fix that. And I'm just like, oh, great. We're going to have to call a plumber. Right. We're going to have to either that or maybe stay in a hotel. I'm already stressed about it and whatever. Yeah. So we call a plumber and they come out within a couple hours, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it is time and a half because this is like after sure. hours and stuff. <laughs> but what struck me was these guys have been running all day long, I'm yeah. sure, because yeah. this is the kind of stuff you run into when it's this cold and right. in Texas, people don't prepare for it. No. And they were so happy and personable and helpful and kind of reassuring. Yeah. And they took care of the problem and we got, you know, we kept hot water in our house and we got to stay there and they fixed it. And I just thought it would have been really easy, especially in my, if I were in their shoes Mm -hmm. to be like, listen, I don't want to deal with you right now. It's, it's 10 degrees outside. Yeah. (laughs) I've been out in it for probably 16 hours today, but they had that professionalism. And I'm guessing that's kind of what you try to instill because I'm in, in your situation, I could see, you know, I've had situations where the AC goes out in the middle of the summer and yeah. here in Texas, it gets crazy hot. It's, and yeah. that is your savior at that moment. The guy right. who fixes your AC. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. You know, I think the thing is, is this, there are so many t-shirt companies out there whose spoken goal is to enchant the customer, or benefit the customer, help the customer. But there are so few who actually have that as their, their lifeblood that it, there's always this place of where if I truly do, and again, not the customer is always right. I'm not going to get way into all that. But I mean, this thing of where my goal is that I might create the best experience for my customers and the optimal opportunity for my employees. If that is truly what drives my heartbeat, enchanting experience to the outside, optimal uh, opportunity to the inside, I believe profitability comes. I believe people are loyal and that's one of the most important key understandings about customers is loyal customers are not repeat customers there's a distinction between the two just because somebody uses you multiple times doesn't mean they're loyal it only means they're repeating they're only loyal insofar as you're the cheapest or they can't find somebody who does the exact same solution for five bucks less what creates true loyalty is the belief that that company is in it for my good And people will always ask, well, I just can't get my guys to buy in. You know, I'm trying to get them to do all these great things. They might be great things, but they don't believe in the heart behind the great things being asked of them. And as such, we're trying to promote an activity as opposed to define an identity. And I think it gets back full circle to where we started. If what you and leadership are asking of your people is a different activity, but they know your identity, they're never going to buy in. It is interesting because in your business, it is, it could be a commodity Mm -hmm. because, you know, if you ask your friends on Facebook, Hey, can you recommend a good, mm-hmm. you know, air and heat guy? You'll get 10 different answers. Sure. And do you still think that this is a relationship business? 
I think especially in service, I definitely think it is. And here's one of the things somebody would say, well, you're an, you're an altruist. So that means that you not only provide premium service, but you do it for almost no charge at all. No, we, we actually charge a premium. And because otherwise we can't be profitable as a company because what we're asking our guys to do is slow down, engage, caretake, benefit the customer. And to do that, we can't work on margins. We can't work on volume. We really have to create, uh, boutique is a wrong word, but a cultivated experience with the customer and as such again we're not cost prohibitive but almost any you know ears or franchisee is going to be uh, maybe a little bit more expensive than a guy just running stuff out of his truck but that being said i liken it to um guy kawasaki he was the chief evangelist of apple yeah right? i love this dude so his statement was what makes people loyal to you is a single word called enchantment and you sit there and you think enchantment that's a goofy word especially to bring up with hvac technicians right <laughs> but the thought process is this people can give you a five let's just say i have six flags i went to six flags last year and six flags is like a texas theme park and, and around the states and got a five-star experience it was great i paid 420 bucks for season tickets it was awesome you know except when i went in july which was horrible but 420 <laughs> bucks five-star experience that's awesome but i wouldn't call it enchanting mm -hmm. i is oh, good money spent last year we went to Disney World, and Disney World costs substantially more. And, and when I'm saying substantially, if I, I was able to use credit card miles and all this stuff, but true math, when it was all said and done with $11,000 spent. Holy cow. <laughs> on, you know, all the all the crap. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, it's a five-star experience. People take pride. Well, I got a five-star rating. Sure, you got a five-star rating, but you only charge 400 bucks. This company got a five-star rating, and people are not just rating it they're ravenous about it people just go to disney over and over again because it's enchanting and they're paying eleven thousand dollars so it's not about the, the commodification well we can't charge anything no listen those guys are making a mint but they're giving the people what they want which is this exclusive enchanting experience that defines worth and value and people are willing to pay them what it's worth to get that experience again and again and again and that probably starts from the top because, you know, Disney is a huge yep. company and I'm sure they've put a lot of thought into we want to create this overall experience of our brands and who we sure. are as a company. Yeah, I 100% believe that. I think that they really have this understanding that unless you create a superlative, consistent experience, your business model is tenuous. And, and I think so the two things we talked about guy, guy Kawasaki his word was enchanting another guy a guy named Michael Gerber wrote a book called the e-myth again anybody who's listening to this go read the book it's a great book and his word that creates loyalty is consistency and so the issue is not whether you create an enchanting single experience but whether you can create that experience every single time and that's why the importance of systems comes into play because you're not having a superstar achieve an outcome you're having a process that can be repeated like a recipe and that's mm -hmm. what systems define us but again unless you are in a business model that allows you to consistently achieve an enchanting or superlative, and this is the key word, experience, not a product. We've progressed. You go read this. We, there's been three eras of retail, basically. 1900s up until the 50s, which is all based on commodity and size. A 320 horsepower engine is worth less than a 340 horsepower engine. Why? Because of 20 horsepower, right? But you have this economy of scale of 345 versus a 350. It's hard to quantify worth. We as a culture moved into the customer service model of value. So it's not just the size of something. I'll sell you that 345 or that 350, but it's me going to come and service it. If anything breaks down, I'll take care of you. But sure enough, that happened from the 50s and 60s, maybe up until the 90s, to early 2000s. We as a culture have progressed into the customer experience management. 
model. And right now, what quantifies value is the experience somebody has with you, not the cup of coffee. Let's talk about that Starbucks. I forget what the math is at the end of 2014, $19 billion system-wide revenue, right? <laughs> so the issue is somebody comes along and they say, hey, I've got these coffee grounds. I had uh, seven cents of coffee grounds and three cents of water and an eight-cent cardboard cup. Well, uh, that's a say, 22 cents. Let me multiply it by two. They're not thinking that way. On average, during that same fiscal year, the average cup of coffee, when I looked it up, was $4.33. And so it's not taking all of the um, attributes, adding them up, and then as a commodity and just multiplying as a multiplier. It's actually creating an experience that people are loyal to. Because I promise you, the coffee might be exactly the same if you've got just a plain white cup or you got one with that little green lady on the side. But the one with the green lady is costing you 4 bucks and 33 cents, and the one with nothing is for free. You know, a good example of that here in Waco, uh, I used to go to Starbucks quite often. There's yeah. one by my house, and they actually remodeled it recently, so I was thinking of going to it. And I decided not to, and I went out of my way. And this isn't a plug for them, but sure. I love Pinewood Roasters, and I don't yeah, know if you've been I, here in town. I, I love it. It's great. Yep. And not only because they really care about the coffee and they can tell you like where their coffee came from. Sure. They could probably tell you the guy who picked the coffee. Yes. Beans, right. And they roast it and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. And the coffee is phenomenal, but it's all about the experience as well. Mm. You know, the baristas ask your name, yeah. you know, you build a rapport. The environment is really inviting and it makes you want to come back to that enchanting mm. experience. I would say any business model that does is not now currently defining itself by experience is on its way out. If you're defining yourself by commodity or by asset or by strength, let's say the HVAC business. Well, I'm a 15 seer. I'm a train. It's hard to stop a train. You're, you're, you're going the way of the dodo bird. You have to define your value proposition by creating a consistent, enchanting experience. And then the question becomes, guys, especially technical background guys, how do I get these guys to buy in? Man, I, I sit there and I have a conversation with 10 technicians. Hey, it's about experience. They're like, forget you, man. I just want to go turn the tool 15 minutes and I'm out. Mm-hmm that company doesn't have a long-term trajectory. It just doesn't because of how customers, the Amazon, the Apple of what has happened to our industry, everything is about experience. And to the extent you can create a consistent superlative experience to the extent you can command whatever profit is worth. Uh, and I think that's interesting. If you look at a little pendulum, not a pendulum, but a little scales, a little scales, the moment that the value on one side exceeds the price, every single, every single buyer, the moment the value exceeds the price, people start buying from you. And so people start coming to look at you and they say, you give me a thousand bucks and I'll give you a thousand one back. I'll do it all, all day, every day. Right. Mm-hmm. But the moment that the price exceeds the value, people stop. And so that says, if you give me a thousand bucks, I'll give you 999. Just makes sense. I'm not going to do that. Importantly, the only two options available to any person out there when it comes to engaging that customer is to either lower your cost, which almost nobody can afford to do because you look at everything from skyrocketing healthcare costs to be able to hire and retain and train the best people all the above. You can't drop your cost. What it has to do is what you have to now do is create a higher value. How do you create higher value if I'm selling a widget? Mm-hmm. Experience. Consistent, superlative, white glove, put your adjective on it you know, enchanting Disneyland experience is going to be your ability to command profit. Would you say that in that regard, it's kind of like the 80, 20 rule. You look for the customers that value that. If the customer is calling you and saying, well, I called these other guys and they said they do it for five bucks cheaper. You kind of say, well, 
if that's yeah. the kind of value you'd like, then go for it. Yeah. So again, I think it's easy for us in our ivory towers of these, you know, nice air conditioned rooms to kind of make these blanket statements across. Listen, I know when you're trying to make payroll and it's a Thursday afternoon and somebody says, Hey, if you can do this job for 1500 bucks less, can we do it? And you got to make that decision. But I would say whenever I've used that, let me just put this case in point. Whenever I've used that Starbucks story before about the four bucks and 33 cents, whenever I tell that invariably somebody has their arms crossed and looks back at me and they say, I don't pay four bucks and 33 cents for coffee. I pay a <laughs> buck and a half. And I look at them dead in the eye and I say, guess what? Starbucks doesn't care. <laughs> they don't care. They've got too many people buying them at their price that they're okay with you not being their customer. You're not going to make Starbucks fail. Mm -hmm. So the issue is there has to be a comfortability with why I'm priced where I am and why I need that price to be profitable and why profit is good. Because truly, we define this when we're talking through our customers as, as part of our air serve process. Mrs. Jones, this is where our profit is going to be on this job. What? You tell the customer your profit? Heck yeah. Why would you tell them your profit? Because if we're not profitable, we're not going to be here three, four, five, seven years now to take care of them if something ever goes wrong. Mm -hmm. They have to understand we're not making a mint on this. We're just trying to make a basic profit so that we can be around to give them and fulfill all the promises we make to them. You tell people that up front, they buy in. They understand the value. And so I think it's really important that we have this different radicalized thought process of what it means to en en encounter the customer with this experience. One other thought is a guy named Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Eighth Habit. He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of the things that he talks about as well is what's called open book management. And this is where you're getting buy-in from your team. Because basically one of the single biggest things, if you're missing on the misalignment or anything else, the goals, the strategy or whatever, one of the biggest things that they're discounting you on is they believe you're holding out on them. Or you tell them, this is the price. We need to go to market for this. And they know that your price is 300 bucks, but your cost is five. Wait a minute. How in the heck is he taking a $5 part and charging 300 bucks for it? There's a disconnect between what they're offering. And therefore, when they're in front of a Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones asks, well, how come I can't get that for 270 bucks? They think, well, five bucks. This guy is pocketing $295 since he's selling it at 300, right? The issue with open book management is it, it, it takes everything that we're talking about with our numbers and puts it into the light in front of our technicians. Listen, guys, out of a hundred bucks that we make, X goes back towards you. Y goes back towards marketing. Z goes towards material cost. All these numbers goes back towards vehicle fuel and 401k and healthcare and all this stuff. And suddenly they begin to see, oh, that's why I actually need to charge 300 bucks for that job because otherwise I'm not going to have a job. It's like the quickest way that I got my son to stop asking for things he didn't need yeah. was to show him our uh, monthly bills. <laughs> yeah, I said, right. here's all the money that comes in. We pay that much to live here? <laughs> right. You pay that much just so you can drive your car and in case somebody hits you, you know, you're not broke yeah. or have to replace your car. And he goes, wow, okay. Yeah, uh, maybe I don't need all this stuff. Right, that's good. I mean, as long as he's not crying himself to bed every night, worried about, you know, uh, being kicked out. No, but but it's 100% right. Because at the end of the day, if you create, the thought process is this, is that people, if they don't know a fact, will assume the worst fact. Hmm. And as such, if you're playing very close to the vest, and I'm not saying that you sit here and show everybody your W-2 as an owner, hey, I made X. But I'm saying when it comes down to it, they need to understand that out of $100 earned, where does it all go? What is my break even? And I can understand if I hit my break even two days earlier in the month, that allows me, and, and this is where I really buy into profit sharing. Hey, this is our goal for profit. Anything above that profit goal, we're going to share back with you guys. You want 401k? You want bonuses? This is it. Suddenly they become not somebody who is just doing stuff on behalf of a boss trying to steal money from little old ladies. They're actually the person by whom they're achieving their best results because they're creating an experience the customer is loyal to, going to pay for, and as such, 
after profits will give them a, a higher value and retention on their job because they're making more money. I was having this discussion with someone, and this may not pertain to you because maybe sure. the company sets everything, but we were talking about the difference between charging per hour and then charging per value. Yeah. And saying, so like, if you're charged per hour, if, if your benefit is per hour, regardless mm-hmm. of what you do, then maybe you even will extend a job that, Oh yeah. You know, but if you're charging for how satisfied somebody is or the yeah. results they have. Well, I can only speak to us. I mean, we're in the service business and so we actually charge by the job, not by the hour. Right. And so basically it is this, this is the job. We diagnose it fully, understand why it happened and what could happen if we don't do anything about it. And we present you all the options beforehand and we say, listen, no matter what happens, I don't care if we have a hurricane come through tomorrow, we will fix this at this price. And this is going to be what it takes to get you taken care of. And people really value upfront pricing because again, a lot of people like this time and materials and stuff, it creates anxiety within the purchaser. It creates anxiety within the customer because they're seeing you take a 15 minute break. You know, am I paying for that? He was just sitting in his car (laughs) drinking Gatorade or he went to the supply house. Am I paying for him going? Did he stop and get lunch? When we're creating doubt in the customer's mind, when we're creating anxiety, it's that break in consistency. When you break down consistency, you diminish your ability to ask Hmm. for price. I, I think it would be difficult in your situation to say like, we could charge for value, but at the same time, if you're providing a good value and creating a good relationship, yeah. those people will come back to you when they need other things or refer you to other people, and for therefore sure. you'll be more profitable overall. Yeah, exactly then right. If you just said, you know, we're per hour and you didn't really think about the long term of it, then sure. you'd be less profitable, I think. Yeah. I mean, and again, you can't easily just say unequivocally across every single industry, but I think basic general sound business principles would reiterate exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Customers crave consistent comfort. I I wasn't trying to be alliterative there, but we are (laughs) creatures of comfort, right? Creatures of comfort and creatures of habit. The more comfortable you can make us, the more habitual and consistent it can be, the higher price we can command for any value offering. I mean, you look at that. We're paying, guys are paying a thousand bucks for an iPhone X, not because it's so much better, but because they know what they're getting. It's an intuitive uh, soup to nuts, finalized experience, and they've already bought into it. And somebody it's that enchanting experience. It's enchanting, right? And so, and even if it's not enchanting, they've gone so far into the belief of the value that they themselves are evangelists. And I love that. So we were talking about Guy Kawasaki. I love that his title was the chief evangelist of Apple, almost like it's the gospel. And if you don't believe in the experience that you have to create as some sort of good news, which is what the gospel is, it's good news. It's this impactful, compelling, beneficial story that somebody can buy into. Then maybe your why or maybe your product is actually lacking a bit. I feel like that's probably why Apple has been so successful because a lot of companies are looking at their spec sheets and we have this many products, but Apple was thinking, how can we take these products and not only make them amazing, but weave them into a mesh of all the other products that you own? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, you're locked in. I think what's interesting is people will come by and say, well, this, this Android has a bigger screen or this phone has a faster. All the attributes are what everybody else defines worth by. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is getting back to those concentric circles, all the activities, all the what's. And Apple's conversation is, no, it's about the, the why. You want intuitive. You want it to work. You want it to be seamless and elegant. This is us. Does it matter that the screen is, is a half inch smaller than the Android? No. Yeah. Does it matter that it's, you know, 256 gigs as opposed to 128? No. Because you buy into the why first. And everything else is just a natural outpouring of that why into the elegant solution that it is. So you may not know this about me, but I 
when I got out of the military, the first job I did was Apple retail. Oh, nice. I did not know <laughs> so that. So no. I sold Apple computers. And nice. If they sold uh, on commission, yeah. I would still be there to this day because right? <laughs> it's just insane how much people just want to buy yeah. it. The very first week on the job, they have you shadow with people you know, before you're allowed to fully interface with customers. Sure. It makes sense. A lot of jobs do that. Right. And the guy I was shadowing, he was one of the top sales guys, but he was the least salesy guy I've probably ever come across. Yeah. And what he did was basically just show people how using Apple products made his life simpler. Nice. And then they would say to themselves, I want that. Yeah. And I feel like that's a lot in, in products is you just want it to feel like this is a, a natural, simple thing to do. And then people will want that product. And I like what you said. He didn't show people how it made their lives simpler. He showed people how it made his life simpler. Mm -hmm. And there's a place of where, you know, if you're a believer if your identity is that I actually value Apple products, not because I make a commission on this, but because, hey, this is what it does for me. And my worth or my value is not dictated on whether you believe that or not. It allows this authenticity to bleed through in such a way that people go, oh, he's not trying to sell me anything. He's just a believer. And when we become face-to-face -face with the believer, I'm not just talking, be it in faith or be it in a product or anything else. When you come face-to-face -face with a believer, a bald-faced believer, who's not even somebody who's passionately preaching at you, but just somebody who, when they look internally like, this is of high value for me, you don't leave unchanged. Even if you come across a product that you thought, that's a terrible product, and you come across a believer, you always leave thinking, I might need to give that product a second chance because it's so rare we come across something that compels people to believe deeply in the solution as opposed to just what that, you know, activity can do for them. Anyways. And how often do we come across salespeople who come off as salespeople because they don't really believe in their product either? Well, I think it's talking points, right? Well, the screen size is this, it's a, you know, 420, whatever. And, and I think at the end of the day, if I come across a guy and he's like, listen, this is what I use all day, every day, because it does this is for me and I need it for that. Now, again, admittedly, there might be times where his stage of life or his solution might be different than what I need. But his authenticity will define worth for me in a way that no spec sheet ever could. Well, I don't know where to go from there. I, I feel like there's probably a part two in here somewhere because we just jumped around. Yeah, seriously, right? So much. <laughs> I hope it wasn't uh, too uh, no, meandering. It was, it was yeah. all really great. I just don't know where to even end at this point yeah. because <laughs> we went from so many places. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming in, for doing I the really podcast. I really appreciate this. Yeah. I hope people uh, learn a lot. I hope you kind of think about that. I mean, that really, since you talked about it, it's really resonated with me thinking more from the identity of who I am, the why, and resonating out yeah. And that's, that's been a huge, I think if you can really internalize that, that will change your life. I a hundred percent agree. And in closing, I think it's so easy for anytime I talk about that, I feel challenged personally because yeah. I sit here and I say, I mean, if you're not, then you're not being real with yourself. Cause I, my identity is still my key issue. I wish I believed what the Bible said about me. I wish I believed what Jesus said about me. I wish I believed these things. What I know is not that it will ever be a journey, a journey that I achieve or finalize. It will just be a place of where when I wake up in the morning, what defines me is not what I achieve. What defines me is not the results that I create, but what defines me is the identity that I have been given as a man, a son of God, pursued by him, and that the outpouring of that is a life fulfilled to be able to be gracious, be kind, be loving to the next person in front of me, regardless if they can ever affect, of if they can ever affect a positive change for me or not. All right. Yeah, Thanks I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good one. Talk to you soon. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.